Life's not fair. My brother got 10 bucks, and I only got five. The popular kids drive the new Chevy truck and the shiny red Corvette while I'm stuck driving my grandma's clunker every day to school. Jan always got the best-looking prom date. I was stuck at home with my pet turtle, Frank. No offense if you have a turtle named Frank. I work just as hard as anyone in my job, but I've never been noticed, never been affirmed. Instead, the people that are rude behind closed doors and late coming into work, they seem to be the people getting all the spotlight at work. From the time we can begin talking and the time we can begin comparing our lives with others, how many of us have declared emphatically or We've thought it deeply. Life's not fair. But we didn't have to go to school and earn a PhD to learn how to say that or to think that. I mean, every single one of us, somewhere along the way, begin to form our little worldviews with a certain way to evaluate what is fair and unfair. You see, we don't have to be taught about the haves and the have-nots in society. Almost without exception, we all grow up in this world through the lens of two categories of people. What I have or don't have and what others have or don't have. And in some ways, that can be very helpful. If we have extra money, we can share with those who are financially hurting. If we are fast and strong and very athletic, we can help those who are weak and need some physical training. And if we are well-respected and well-known, we can include others in our lives who might be feeling lonely or on the fringe. But what about when you and I are on the other side of the equation? What happens when you might be on the have-nots side of the comparison table? How do you respond to the seeming injustice that has been done towards you? What happens when life seems, at least from your perspective, unfair, perpetually disappointing? A life feels to you, it's constantly uneven, unbalanced, maybe even backwards from the way things should be. And what you think is fair, what I think is fair, rarely occurs in our favor. You and I look at the cards we're dealt with in this life, and we just don't like them. Friends, those type of perplexing questions and painful feelings are as old as human existence. Ever since that ancient serpent, Satan aroused in the heart of Eve the possibility that God was shortchanging her, that God was holding back his goodness towards her, that God was somehow being unjust and unfair with her by prohibiting the consumption of fruit from one tree. 
by holding back wisdom and knowledge from her to be like God. That same alluring temptation creeps into our lives even to today. If I don't have what someone else has, does that make God unfair? If life isn't going as swell and successful and enjoyable as someone else's life, does that mean trusting God is pointless? You see, the saints of the Old Testament and believers on this side of the cross of Jesus Christ have faced the same perplexing questions, beloved. That's why I love the Bible. It's so honest. If you just read your Old and New Testament, don't skip over the 150 Psalms God gave us because the Bible is raw. The Bible is explicit about the disappointing and disillusioning and sometimes backwards feeling reality of life as it really is. You see, if we read our Bibles carefully and look at our lives honestly, at some point, you and I are going to be faced with this daunting and difficult question to answer. Why is it that the godly, those who are trusting in the God of Scripture, sometimes suffer perpetually while the ungodly prosper and life is going quite well for them. How do you trust God in your life when life just seems unfair? Well, to answer those questions, let's look to God's word. If you have your Bibles, open to Psalm 73. Psalm 73, if you're using the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 278. Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is the first psalm written in book three of the Psalter, which is really divided up in five books. Book three stretches from Psalm 73 to Psalm 89. Uh, Psalm 73 is considered one of the wisdom psalms, where there's a comparison in the psalm, between the righteous and the unrighteous, those who know God, those who do not know God. And the reader is drawn in, just like us this morning, to consider which path of life we are currently walking on. And whatever path we're walking on, we're presented with two different outcomes, two different consequences made for us by the choice we've made of whether or not We're going to follow the narrow way, which leads to life, or the broad way that leads to destruction. You'll also notice in the heading that the psalm is written by Asaph, uh, which was one of the chief choir leaders of the tabernacle worship for the people of Israel. Under King David's direction, Asaph, along with his sons and some other leaders, they were appointed as ministers before the ark of the Lord to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord the God of Israel. If you want to read more about Asaph and his sons and others like him, like worship choir directors of the Old Testament, uh, you can look at 1 Chronicles chapter 6, 16, and 1 Chronicles 25. For the purposes of our context here, Psalm 73 is not necessarily set in a particular historical event. It's not like the Exodus or the exile. There's no real details about what's going on in Israel 
that's unique in that sense. That, that means that Psalm 73 is to be read with a common sentiment, a, a common agreement that life in a fallen world will often feel this way for the godly. Psalm 73 is the common confession and complaint with the conviction and the confidence that God's people experience, even when they trust God, when life doesn't feel fair. Please follow with me as I read Psalm 73. A Psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts to the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, When I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? 
And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is God's word. If you're taking notes, I have four main points that will serve as an outline for you to follow with us this morning. We'll start with point number one, the unchangeable creed of the godly. The unchangeable creed of the godly. We read in verse 1, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. You see, Psalm 73 begins by stating what is true about God. Before we read of anything that seems hard or unfair about us. He says, truly God is good to Israel. What does it mean that God is good? Well, from the opening pages of Scripture. Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we read of the goodness of God. First, in everything that God created, he created to display his glory and his goodness. Genesis 1, verse 31, And God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. In Genesis chapter 12, as God planned to bless the nations through Abram and his descendants, it was God's way to show off his loving kindness to the world that he created. So God would call a people to himself, not because those people were mighty in number, And not because those people deserved it, but because he chose to love them. He chose to reveal his kindness, his mercy, and his goodness to them, despite who they were in and of themselves. In other words, friends, God had treated sinners better than their sins deserved. That's because God is always good, even when we are not. God is always good, even when we are not. As you read throughout the Old Testament, it becomes very clear that the Lord would show his loving kindness to an undeserving multitude by forming a covenant with his elect people, the nation of Israel. That covenant was formed between God and his people. And that covenant was to protect them. He gave them laws and boundaries and rules and warnings and punishments that would ensue if those warnings were not obeyed. But the covenant was also a covenant filled with wonderful promises that were wrapped securely better than any birthday or Christmas gift you could ever receive. It was wrapped securely with the bow of God's goodness. You see, out of his mercy, 
in their slavery. God would hear their cries in Egypt and send a deliverer to rescue them. God was good to them. Out of his power and sovereignty to conquer pagan nations who opposed them and smite countless kings that threatened to do them harm, God's presence would go before them and guide them. God was good to them. And his presence and his wisdom would guide them into the future. A future that one day, if they cling to God's covenant by faith, would reach a good land. The promised land. The land the Bible speaks of as a land flowing with milk and honey. That's just another way of saying that land's real good. It's a good place. It's a good place because God is there. As you read through the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, what we read time and time again is that God would never change from being good. If God was no longer good, he would no longer be God. It's his very essence. It's who he is. Everything that he says, everything that he does, everything he is, he is the standard. He is the definition. He is the essence of all that which is good. That means there has never been a time that God's word to them or God's guidance to them wasn't for their good. Even in his wrath, even in his discipline, his judgments were perfect and his purposes for them were always saturated in his goodness. That's why another psalmist elsewhere would declare something that all of us need to learn over time, that even in pain and sorrow, God is still good all the time. Psalm 119, verses 65 to 72. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, I keep your word. Look at verse 68. If you're looking for a new magnet or a wedding invitation to throw a text at the bottom, and this is a good one. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Friends, that either sounds like a madman or that sounds like someone that the God of Scripture has changed their heart. That the good God of the Holy Bible can take what was meant for evil in your life and use it for good in your life. Friends, that right there, you can chew on that for the rest of 2021. What did the psalmist declare? 
the psalmist agreed that God had dealt well with him. He had agreed that even by his afflictions, though those afflictions were bad and painful, were being used for good in his life. And what was the result? Was it pointless? Was it a wasted opportunity? Did the enemy win the day? Unlike before, he now treasured God's word over and above all the treasures this world could offer him. Friends, the creed or beliefs of those who truly trust in the God of Scripture stands on this unchangeable reality. God is good. Regardless, friends, of what kind of week you and I just had, regardless of how bad and painful an affliction could have been, God has still remained good to you. God has still remained good to me. Friends, I would encourage each one of us, when you are at your lowest at the end of a week or at the beginning of a week, is to take time and remember how good God has been to you through creation, through what he's provided, where he saved you from, and what good he has done to you even when you did not deserve it. Friends, that's, that's what the Christian life is all about. And when you can't remember how good God's been to you, that's why you need to have a faithful friend, a spouse, a sibling to remind you and to remind me when the windshield gets a little foggy and dark sometimes. Because sometimes, friends, God's people can have a hard time taking what they know to be true intellectually, what they know to be true theologically, and then live by it in the muck and mire of this fallen world. And that's why we are now at point two, the confession of a dirty secret. The confession of a dirty secret. Look at verses two and three. Asaph says, but as for me, so he's gone from saying something about God, God is good, now he's gonna put it back on himself. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. And here's the dirty secret. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For those of us who might be in here today and you're a little skittish of church because you think that church is full of fake and plastic people, Let me trash that stereotype right now. We're going to have some pastor real talk by your very own. Did you know that godly people can think and feel ungodly things about other people? Did you know that? Oh, now we're going. We're getting there. Y'all listening in now. Godly people can feel and think ungodly things about other people. Did you know that church-going people, even Jesus-loving people, even those who sing on stage, preach from a pulpit, give the most in the church, can have desires in their hearts at times that are worldly, sensual, and evil? 
lusting after a pornographic image, lingering for a second look at someone who isn't your spouse, jealous of a salary your neighbor or sibling has, envious of how smooth and easy it was for that couple to have biological children of their own. You see, envy might seem like a dirty little secret because it's often hidden from others knowing about it. But beloved, God knows. God sees. And God cares. Envy is the hidden demonic poison that can choke out godly ambitions and godly attitudes in any one of us. Do you recall what Jesus said in the parable of the sower about the seed that fell amongst the thorns? Mark 4, verses 18 and 19, and others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word. They're at church on Sunday. They're listening to podcasts on Tuesday. They're reading the books that Pastor Blake passes out. But the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things. You know what that word desire there is? Man, do you going to like it? Epithumeo, craving, a longing. It's that demonic envy. Enters in and chokes the word. Literally grabs a hold of the word and it proves unfruitful. You see, envy and fleshly cravings inside of us try to make this world everything to us. The evil envy and Judas-like covetousness inside us makes us use things like wealth and money and stuff and we make it our own little God. It's our idol. And it's cravings like this, my friend, that if they go unchecked and unrepented of, it paves the way for nominalism. It paves the way for apostasy. Have you ever wondered why some folks that used to go to church with you for a really long time stop going to church and no longer give a rip about Jesus? It's because their seed of God's word possibly fell amongst the thorns and other things choked it and they fell away from the faith. Paul instructed Timothy, this young pastor, to warn the flock in Ephesus about a certain craving that we in the 21st century here in the Western America need to hear afresh. 1 Timothy 6, verses 9 and 10, those who desire, you hear that word again coming out? They crave it, they long for it, to be rich, fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money. It's not having money. It's not spending money. It's not using money. It's the love, the craving, the greediness of money that is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this 
craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And did you know that envy left unchecked and unrepented of can destroy the unity and the gospel witness of a local church? Do you remember Paul's stark and stern words to the Galatians? Galatians 5, verses 13 to 26. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. There's those cravings again, those lusts again. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. That means you can see them. This is what comes out when you sow to that sinful craving. Sexual immorality. Impurity. Sensuality. Idolatry. Sorcery. Enmity. Strife. Jealousy. Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you. Do you hear that? Anytime an author says, I warn you, we need to like, okay, I need to wake back up. Here we go. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Friends, that means envy is not a dirty little secret. Envy is a really big problem. And if we do not, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the flesh, Romans 8.13 says, we will not live. 
You might be asking, well, Pastor Blake, you've, you've, you've really uh, got us in a kind of an unnerving, abrupt mood. I mean, how bad is envy? I mean, isn't there a place called massage envy? I mean, can I go to the massage parlor at envy? I'll leave that up between you and the Lord. But really, is envy that big of a deal? I mean, aren't there worse sins? Well, the Bible uses four different terms, sometimes interchangeably, to basically allude to this same ungodly passion that can fester in each one of us. You're familiar with these words. Envy, lust, greed, and coveting. In her book, The Envy of Eve, I would encourage you, it's a good book. If you're looking to read a book this summer on this topic, The Envy of Eve, author Melissa Kruger helps us define these terms both by their similarities and their slight distinctions. She writes, every scriptural use of the word covet describes an idolatrous or immoderate desire to possess. Thus, we can define coveting as an inordinate or culpable desire to possess, often that which belongs to another. The term inordinate speaks to desiring a good thing in a wrong or idolatrous manner, while the term culpable speaks of desiring a wrong thing clearly prohibited by Scripture. She goes on further to explain, coveting is such a problematic sin pattern that the Bible uses other words to help clarify types of wrong desires. Under the large umbrella of coveting are three specific subsets of coveting, envy, lust, and greed. Envy describes a setting of our affections on that which specifically belongs to another. Lust describes coveting, which is usually sexual in nature. Greed describes coveting, which is primarily focused on the acquisition of money and possessions. Each of these specific types of coveting are aspects of the larger attitude that, if left unchecked, can consume our hearts and lead to lives of unsettled discontentment. A covetous heart pines away never satisfied, and always wanting more. Well, for Asaph, he acknowledges who he was envious of and why he was envious of them. He writes, did you notice there again? I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The arrogant or proud here he's referring to are those who are separated from God. They don't love God. They don't live for God. They don't trust in God. Simply put, they don't know God and they don't care. In fact, they are so self-sufficient, self-reliant, that the wicked looks to God and scoffs and mocks him. As you'll notice in verse 11, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? And specifically, he says he was envious, though. 
He was jealous, not of their mockery, but of their prosperity. He's describing here the lifestyle of the ungodly in his day, their lifestyle of ease and comfort. This is luxurious and licentious living. It's the life that says, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, and it doesn't matter. Pleasure is God, and I'm the center of the universe. Everybody and everything exists to satisfy my cravings. You see, these men and women turned their backs on trusting God and found all their peace and security in themselves instead of finding security in the God who gave them everything they have, including their brain they use to mock him. In verses 4 and 5, he elaborates on what he deems what's totally unfair about the comforts and the ungodly lifestyles that the ungodly were enjoying. And it seems like the righteous, those who are trusting in God, well, they got the scraps. They were missing out. In verse 4, he alludes to their long and relatively healthy lives. Little to no health issues, and when they died, it really wasn't all that painful in the end. Then in verse 5, he continues on by elaborating how they ride through life seemingly carefree. While everyone seems to have their problems, well, their list of problems are relatively short. Then in verses 6 to 9, he reveals the nature of human pride. And how unbelievers were callous towards others and concerned only about themselves. Instead of using their wealth to bless others, they indulged only in themselves. Instead of using their power to protect others who were vulnerable, they used their power to oppress and exploit others. Asaph then basically summarizes the lifestyle of the rich and famous of the wicked in verse 12. Look in verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Brothers and sisters, like Asaph, Has envy gripped your heart this morning? Do you envy something or someone that God has given to another person, but not to you? If you were raw, because we're going to push back on being a plastic church. If you were raw and totally honest, what keeps dominating your thoughts? And leaving you angry, resentful, and even cold-hearted because you don't get what you want. What is it that you think you're missing in your life today that God hasn't given you? And you're here this morning pouting like a little child. Because you know grown adults, 
They might shave. They might age. But adults can act like little kids who pout too. Maybe you envy the obedient children of a family you know. Maybe you envy the nice and spacious house your boss at work lives in. Maybe you envy the lifestyles of people you find on the internet. Maybe over the last six months you found yourself somewhat addicted, staring at pictures and videos on Instagram and Facebook, and you find yourself picturing what life would be like if you were only married to that person. Spending that kind of money, living that kind of lifestyle, and having that kind of body. Friends, whatever or whomever you have an inordinate desire for or illicit craving towards, whatever you and I put in the blank this morning, if we're raw, if we're honest, if we're getting real, behold your idol. Behold what you and I have replaced with a good God with our own little manufactured worldly God. You might say, well, Blake, how do you draw the line? That's a stretch, brother, between envy and coveting and an idol. I'm glad you asked. Paul wrote to the believers in Colossae, in Colossians 3, verses 1 to 6. I want you to follow his logical argument. Colossians 3, verses 1 to 6. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these the wrath of God is coming. God is serious about all sin. He is serious about envy and coveting and jealousy and greed and lusting. The wrath of God is coming on sins like those, respectable sins for middle to upper class white people to hear once again, it's not. If those sins can send us to hell, then we must get serious about killing those sins in our life. Friends, how do we do that? How do we, how do, we do that? Well, first acknowledge it. <laughs> Call it what it is. Call a spade a spade. If it's envy, call it that. And go one step further. It's my idol. It's my God. And then, this is where you go from baby Christian to mature Christian. After you've confessed it to God, then confess it with a few godly Christians who can hold you accountable. 
personal confession. When I was 19 years old, I had recently gotten the news that my knees were basically done with playing football. I didn't get very far. Scholarships were somewhat removed going into my freshman year in college due to my injury and some other recruiting situations. I eventually walked on to play football at a D2 school. They were really good, but when I showed up, they had seven quarterbacks on roster. If you know anything about football, that means I'm probably not going to be throwing the pigskin to anybody, at least not in a game. Football ended for me very quick. That same year, I got word that a former teammate of mine had just been offered a full scholarship to play at the University of Georgia. A bulldog. I didn't like the bulldogs, but a full ride's a full ride. In SEC football, it's a little better than D2. This dear teammate got a full ride. I set records, I broke records, I made him look good. That's just a fact. That's not pride, that's a fact. But I was sitting at home, punching a table while he was playing college football on Saturdays. I was angry, mad, venomous. I slandered him. I was angry. I was so mad. And I struggled for probably one to two years so badly I couldn't even watch college football. My wife watches 10 times more college football than me at the beginning of our marriage. And it was partly because I didn't want to see what God gave him and not me. You might say, well, Blake, are you still struggling with that? I mean, you're 35. You're going to hit that midlife soon. You probably want to stick to video games or something. No, there was a turning place. I had to get raw. I was angry because he got what I wanted. He didn't do anything to me. My problem was I didn't trust that God was good with what he was doing in my life. It was an idol, and I had to get raw, and I shared it with my buddies as we're working out in the gym. Hey, man, I made so-and-so an idol. I've been jealous of him for three years. Hey, let's watch him play this Saturday. I emailed that famous athlete who eventually did go on to the pro, so he ended up getting better. And I said, man, I'm so happy for you. It's amazing to see what God's been blessing your life with. It didn't happen overnight. It didn't happen in a week. It took years. But when did the hinge turn? When did the door turn for Blake Boyle's envious, jealous, idolatrous heart? I had to get raw. He got what I wanted and God didn't give it. Friends, what is it this morning that you are angry, resentful, jaded, because you're jealous of what God has given someone else, but not you. You see, friends, the envy that we have lodged in our hearts this morning, it's like a, a beast. That's why Galatians 5.15 says, watch out or you'll devour each other. If we're jealous and we're envious and we feed it, we're going to devour each other. We're going to take each other out, tear each other down, because we're kicking and crawling after what we want, but we can't get. It's like a bomb ready to blow up, destroying everyone around us, including ourselves. 
You see, Asaph modeled humility when he confessed his so-called dirty little secret. He recorded it in sacred scripture. Friends, how many people have read the Bible? How many people have read Psalm 73? Asaph got real with God and with like millions and millions and millions and millions of people that have existed since Asaph. Now, friends, I'm not encouraging you to go to a publisher and confess all your sins and have it published. That's not exactly what I'm saying. I'm not saying go post all your sins on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. I think that's foolish and naive, and there's a lot of Proverbs that would tell you, don't do that. But there is an appropriate place to get real with a real human being who you respect and trust so that they can hold you accountable with that envy or that jealousy in your heart. Never forget this, pride always keeps us from showing our sin to others. Godly humility opens the door of our lives to show our dirty laundry to others. To others who love us and want to help us fight against that sin. If you're a member here at Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church, maybe spend this week rereading the church covenant. That framed poster in our lobby, the one you get in the email once a month before the Lord's Supper, reread the church covenant. One of the things that we covenant to do is help each other fight against our sin to stay faithful to our Savior. Well, after confessing his dirty secret, Asaph experienced what every godly person experiences at one point or another when God brings clarifying conviction, which leads to point number three, God brings conviction and clarity to the godly. God brings conviction and clarity to the godly. Look at with me in verses 13 to 17. He says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. You see, Asaph's envy towards the lifestyle of the wicked had become so hot and heavy inside his heart that he got to the point he wanted to give up. He wanted to give up on having faith in the God who is good. Friends, let me just say this, not in my notes. Sin is always irrational because it chooses a lesser good than trusting in God who is the supreme good. We obey God, we resist him because God is good. Sin is irrational. Why would we go after something that's less than the best, which is trusting in God? Asaph began to think to himself, have you ever been there? All this praying to God, is pointless. This studying and obeying God's word is useless. All these attempts to live a holy lifestyle in the midst of pain and suffering and injustice, it's in vain. He describes the reality of going to bed, waking up, and the proverbial groundhog day occurred again and again. Same problems, same injustices, 
Same disappointing outcomes day in and day out. Did you notice what he said? For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. But then in verse 15, he writes as one that I think many of us can identify with. Before he could write any further, he recalls how the Spirit of God changed his heart towards God as he thought about his ungodly attitude affecting other believers. In verse 15, he recognizes that if he says out loud everything to everybody of what he's feeling about the wicked and he's feeling about God, his murmuring, his faithless attitude could have a negative effect on the rest of God's people. So instead of speaking further, of his complaints, he refrained. Friends, unbelief or distrust in God's goodness towards you and I is like the germs of the common cold. As soon as people are sharing their germs of jealousy and coveting and envy and pride with no evidence of confessing or repenting, but indulging in it, it can contaminate a whole community, and even a church community at that. You remember Achan in Joshua chapter 7 when, it, when he coveted? It almost ended up God's wrath and removal from the Israelites continuing in the promised land. You remember King Saul? Why was he trying to kill David? Because he was jealous of David. Women thought he was the stuff, and men wanted to be like him, and he was the next king in town, and Saul wasn't. Friends, unbelief leads to murmuring and complaining, and it can spread amongst God's people and create division and discontentment in the camp. CCBC as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ and members who are in covenant with each other, we should be prudent and gracious in how we speak to one another about the things we don't like in the church and the people we don't like in the church. We should be prudent and gracious in how we speak to one another about the things we don't like in the church or the people we don't like in the church. What does Ephesians 4, 29 to 32 tell us? Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. You know, as a Christian and as a local church pastor, I have found that over time, generally speaking, so there are exceptions, the people who are the unhappiest in the church are typically the loudest and most disruptive to the peace of God's church. Brothers and sisters, we must remain watchful over our hearts. We must remain watchful over our speech 
And we should remain prayerful for the peace and unity of Christ's church. You see, envy and discontentment are all over the New Testament. Do a word study sometime. This is not a Psalm 73 hobby house or Blake woke up on the wrong side of the pillow. Envy's all over the place. You see, envy and discontentment can spread like wildfire in a church. When we compare our spiritual gifts with someone else's spiritual gifts, when we are envious of others who have places of leadership that we want, but we don't have, when we are known as church critics rather than encouraging church members, when we are known as speaking poorly about others behind their backs instead of working through our differences with the person directly and doing so charitably with their good in mind. James exhorts us in James 3, Verses 13 to 18, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You see, envy and discontentment can touch us individually. It can touch us as a household. It can touch the life of a church. A church could even begin to envy too much what another local church has, envying the building or budget of another local church, envying the children's ministry, youth ministry, and men and women's ministry of another local church, envying the pastor, the music, the comforts and amenities of another local church. Friends, the temptations are all over the place. They hit us at different places and at different times. But we can be tempted to envy almost anything at any time. From the clothes on someone's back to the spouse they are married to, the lawnmower they own, the thickness and color of someone's hair. Dead serious, I've had people confess that to me. The children they are raising, the retirement package they just received, all the way to the vacation someone else got to enjoy, and you didn't. But brothers and sisters, whatever you find yourself complaining or grumbling about or envying in your life, confess it to God. Confess it to a small circle of godly, trusted friends, and then make a firm decision to do whatever is needed to bring peace and unity to others around you. For some, that might mean to forgive someone and move on. For some, it might mean learning to rejoice in the blessings of another, which I had to learn when I was 19 years old till I was about 22 to finally get to the place where I could turn on the television again. Rejoice in what God's doing in other people's lives. For others, it might mean to peacefully leave and join another church you can happily serve and commit to. Stop envying, just go be obedient. Friends, Christian love thinks about the good of others, especially to protect the unity of a local church 
rather than the comforts and preferences of themselves. Well, Asaph said once this conviction from God set in, the Lord made everything much more clear to him. It was when he went into the sanctuary of God, verse 17, his perspective on life being unfair began to change. He discovered two things the Lord made clear to him. Number one, the ungodly may enjoy the comforts of this life, but they will be separated from God forever if they don't repent. And second, envy can make us act irrationally and subhuman, like an animal, rather than thankful. Listen, if you're here today and maybe, maybe you're actually enjoying life fairly well, you don't envy anyone's life because you love everything about it. You've got plenty of money. You've got plenty of clothes. You've got amazing health. And friends, I want to acknowledge those are gifts that you can enjoy. Those are gifts that you should rejoice in. But remember, all those gifts are from God. They are not God's themselves. And friends, God may bless you or bless your neighbor or bless a pagan or whomever, and it does not mean that they know him. You see, you can be given all the temporal and transient things of this life, and then one day it will be gone. When's the last time you saw a U-Haul by a graveside? For we came into this world with nothing, and we will leave this world with what? Nothing. You see, we should all be very careful how we interpret prosperity. We should be very careful how we think about comforts like health and money and wealth and ease in this life and think just because someone has a lot, they're A-OK with God. You see, having good health is a blessing from God, but having good health does not mean you are in right relationship with God. Having wealth and power are blessings from God, but they must be used wisely and generously in the fear of God knowing that you only have what you have because God gave it to you. Friends, the book of Job and the book of Ecclesiastes tells us that God is sovereign over everything, including every person that will ever live. He blesses the godly and the ungodly. That's why the doctrine of common grace is such a beautiful doctrine. If you open up our statement of faith, we have a whole article on it, which teaches that God does bless the godly and the ungodly. What does Matthew 5, 45 say? God makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. But being godly does not mean you will get everything you want in this life. Being godly doesn't mean you won't suffer in this life. In fact, Job was godly and he almost lost everything. Jesus Christ God's sinless, beloved son was practically homeless and slandered as if he was Satan to the bulk of his public ministry. If anyone knew life to be unfair, it was Jesus. Jesus made it very clear in Luke chapter 12 that life does not consist in the abundance 
of his possessions. Friends, it is better to be without this world's comforts but have God forever than to have this world's comforts and be separated from God forever. You know, as Christians, we already know this. We've already counted the cost. We've already seen that if we put our faith in Christ, we get the pearl of great price. But if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you need to hear that God has been supremely good to you and I, regardless of how many good gifts you receive in this life. God has treated us better than our sins deserve. That's what the gospel is. It's the good news that have come from our good God. It's God's merciful provision for mankind's greatest problem. You see, we are all born as sinners. We are born not good. We are born unrighteous. And the only thing we deserve is God's good and righteous judgment. But out of the overflow of God's mercy and out of the waterfall of his goodness, he sent forth his son, Jesus Christ, into this world, a world full of wealth and poverty, mixed with pleasurable ease and painful suffering. He who was rich became poor for our sake. In the fullness of time, Christ gave his life as a ransom for many by dying on the cross as a punishment for sin. The good shepherd laid down his life for godless and wayward sheep. Christ's perfect life was offered to God as a pleasing sacrifice for our wicked lives of envy, lust, pride, self-reliance, and the love and the desire for the things of this world. Jesus rose from the dead, opening the door to all of us who can find true wealth in him, everlasting joy in him, eternal hope in him, and everlasting security in knowing him. You see, friends, our contentment does not rely on how swell or how comfortable this life is. As Christians, our contentment is found in knowing God and who he is for us through Jesus Christ. Friends, if you want to know a contentment, if you want to begin to learn the secret of being content in a very discontented world, in a world that does feel very unfair at times, you've got to put your trust in the goodness of God that doesn't change. Turn from your sins and trust in our good shepherd, Jesus Christ, and you will find rest for your souls. Christ is the greatest gift. He's already given us the best God can offer. But lastly, we learn now that God's strength, as we put our faith in him through Christ, he gives us confidence, even when life seems unfair. And this will be very quick. Point number four, the confidence that God instills in the godly. The confidence that God instills in the godly. This morning we've been discovering some pretty convicting and comforting truths, right? The seed of unbelief produces the destructive thorns of envy and a proud heart. But the seed of faith, faith in God, produces the good fruit of confidence in God and passion for him. 
You know, Asaph started off with a creed, a belief that God is good and he does good. He then openly confessed his dirty little secret and how envy for what God had given the ungodly had regretfully gripped his heart. But after the Lord brought him to the end of himself and the Lord shined light in truth into his unfair life, so he thought. He began to see his unfair life from God's fair perspective. He began to have confidence and joy in God himself, in his life. Look at verse 23. He says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. You see, friends, God may use afflictions to humble us. God may use pain and disappointments to loosen our grip on this world in order to prepare us for the next. And sometimes God even surrounds us with people who have more stuff than us. They have what we want in order to expose a hidden sin of envy that we didn't know we had in our hearts. You see, Asaph reminds us here this morning that in Christ, God is continually with us because God is good. In Christ, God will continually guide us because God is good. In Christ, God will keep us through this life for our eternal life because God is good. And in Christ, God will be the strength of our hearts even when our bodies fail and our lives seem unfair. Author Marshall Seagal once put it very aptly, learn to love the life you have with God even if it is the life you never wanted. Learn to love the life you have with God even if it is the life you never wanted. Is it worth it to trust God when life seems unfair? Is it worth it to be godly when it's all said and done? Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good and you do good. And you have sent us the supreme manifestation of your goodness in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray this morning that if there is envy lodged in each one of our hearts, Lord, I pray that you would expose it. Bring it to the light so that we can see life 
from your perspective and not our own. Lord, I pray that we would be a covenant community that helps each other fight against jealousy and envy, and that we would be a people marked by thanksgiving and contentment in you. For we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.